0: Jeff Woodkey was a relief worker and a gospel worker in Niger. He knew, in his line of work, there were risks. I always told my friends,
1: my wife, I said, look, if I'm taking hostage and they're gonna bring the helicopters out, just tell them to hit the truck with a missile. It's better, I'm not kidding, it's better to be dead than to be a hostage.
0: But becoming a hostage is exactly what happened.
1: And there were shots and shots and I said, yeah, the next one's gonna go in the back of my head. I tried to surrender, but they, they just kept beating me, and they drugged me out, and naked into captivity I went. Jesus never promised His followers an easy path. In fact, He told His disciples that the world would hate them. He sent them out as sheep among wolves. Jesus' words came true in the life of the apostles, and they're still coming true today in the lives of His followers around the world. Join host Todd Nettleton as we hear their inspiring stories and learn how we can help. Right now on The Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network.
0: Welcome again to The Voice of the Martyrs Radio. My name is Todd Nettleton, and uh, we are on the road this weekend with Jeff Woodkey. Uh, Jeff was a gospel worker in West Africa. Uh, He was kidnapped and held hostage for more than six years. What a privilege it is to hear his story. Jeff, thank you for being willing to share with us.
1: You're welcome. It's my privilege.
0: Let's go back before all of the hostage stuff. How how did you end up in West Africa?
1: I started out in uh, Central America working with YWAM after my bachelor's. I wanted to go to North Africa and work there. So in 1987, I drove across the Sahara uh, with a small team with the idea of setting up a work in, uh, I'll, I'll tell you the name of the country, in Niger. Got a lot of good ideas and we went back to Europe and I began the process. And at that point in time I also met my wife in Holland and we actually uh, made it all happen together. We came in as a international NGO which um, took a lot of paperwork, a lot of work to get established there, about a year's worth. And I began doing, people call it humanitarian aid, as well as gospel. Of course, keeping both of those things separate, because that's not only illegal to mix them, but it's also very bad practice. So we kept those two things separate. And um, in Abalak area, we did church planning with um, Wadabe people, and just discipleship, evangelization. And I had uh, other people that were doing that. But that ministry was quite successful, and we're very happy with with how it's turned out.
0: How did you think about risk? I mean, you're going into a Muslim context. How did you think about, there will be people here who don't want us to be here.
1: I was in another North African country. I'm not gonna give the name of that one. And their risk uh, at that point was a much more serious question. But I wasn't there long-term. I was there to learn language and things. But coming to Niger, it was a country that was open, Um, There were churches there, and you could get a lot of social persecution, and individuals could get persecuted if they became Christians, their families or their little local village, whatever, didn't like them. But there was nothing illegal about it. It was more social. So risk wasn't a huge issue for us there at first. Eventually, the rise of Salafist Islam, Changed all of that.
0: So at some point, did you have to kind of rethink the level of risk? I mean, as you talk about more radical Islam coming in, more pressure, in your own mind, were you thinking this is getting more dangerous? Or was it like, hey, this is where we live. This is our life. And you just kind of went on.
1: We started realizing I'm not sure what year it was. It was maybe 2007, maybe 2008. There was a a fashion show for West African mode and it was in Niger. And boy, there were riots and churches got burned. And at that point we took a step back and said, this is getting serious here. These there's people that have a problem, but we didn't really look at it in terms of terrorism. By the time 2016 came around, we'd already had to bug out from Abalak, which is the town I was working in, two or three times because of terrorist threats. They were coming. We knew they were coming. We wow. got word. So we left, sometimes on our own, sometimes with big escorts, and got out of there, and then we would wait till the we got it all clear and go back. We had all kinds of triggers and trip lines in place. But by the time I was taken, I was a busy guy. We were dealing with a very large grant from the British government. And you know we were doing something with another funding organization from the US, putting on uh, pastoral rights workshops, land management workshops. I didn't have time to, to think too much about security, although it was always on my mind mm-hmm. and my wife's mind. Every day when we spoke, it was like, okay, well, I'm here, I had armed guards every night. I couldn't go in the bush anymore. We thought, well, the French are now in Gao and elsewhere. They've got this terrorist thing under control. That was a mistake.
0: Let's talk about the night that you were taken. Can you kind of walk me through what happened? And
1: uh, I came home from the last day of Awake. wake. It was a friend of mine who passed away. And, and I came home around eight o'clock. We'd had a flood uh, in our neighborhood, a big one. It had taken out all the walls around my my house. All, all I had three of the walls rebuilt, but the wall to the I guess east was still not built, and it was open to the street. My night guard was there making tea, and sitting next to him was uh, one of the Republican guard soldiers that guarded me. He was there with his rifle next to him on a folding camping bed, and there was another guard in the back of the compound behind a tree. I could see his cell phone because he was talking on it. I sat down, said hello, and the Republican guard looks up and he says, there's that vehicle again. And he reaches for his rifle, and he never got his hand on it, I turned to look in the direction he was looking and a rifle barrel came into my peripheral vision on the right side, you know, as as dark as pitch black, with this orange flash coming out of the muzzle and the flash suppressor on there. Uh, And that's still in my mind, it'll never go away. And I hit the ground just, I don't know how or why, just hit face down, I hit the deck, started hearing shots and people crying. Two people died that night, right then and there. And there were shots and shots, and I could hear them crying. I could hear them dying. And um, I said, yeah, the next one's going to go in the back of my head. This is probably ISIS or somebody. And so I got up and ran, and they were on me, trying to grab me. They got hold of my long robe, and I just lifted my hands up over my head, and the robe came off. And they had the robe, but they didn't have me, and I kept running, bare-chested. And um, they were beating me with rifle butts to try and knock me down in my shoulders. One of the terrorists caught me in my Achilles with a rifle butt and destroyed most of it. Um, That knocked me right down. And then came to the back of my head. Didn't knock me out, but certainly took all the wind out of my sails. I tried to surrender, but they, they just kept beating me. And they drug me out on the ground by one arm. um, And they'd move their truck. See, those guys had actually come on a motorbike, which is why when the guard saw the truck, they were already on the ground coming in with their rifles level. It was too late. They just beat the stuffing out of me right in front of that truck and threw me in, and we took off. They stripped me completely naked, even took my wedding ring. Everything went out the window. And naked into captivity, I went.
0: So it was very clear
1: they came for you. They did not come for me They came for another group that was there from another country. and They were the target. They left the day before. And I thought about that a lot. And I was really glad that they weren't in captivity. I thought, better me than them. And there were four of them. Uh, That would have been terrible. The guy that took me, the snatch guy, who was a real piece of work. I've been informed he's no longer alive. That guy um, had been scouting me for a while. That's at least what he told me. So they took what they could get.
0: You're listening to The Voice of the Martyrs Radio. We're talking this week with Jeffrey Woodkey, who was held hostage for more than six years in West Africa. So... Did you know who had you and you knew...
1: I had no clue who had me. Okay. I had no clue of anything. And obviously they weren't talking. If I opened my mouth, I got punched and beat. Till finally I feigned like I was passed out. And they, that scared them. They thought they killed me. So they actually stopped, listened to my chest, gave me a drink of water, gave me um, a shirt to put on so I wasn't sitting there naked. And But I was a bloody mess. The back of that car was just covered in blood. And I was covered in blood. And the brand new shirt they gave me ended up covered in blood. And I wasn't able to wash it for like a week or 10 days. They weren't telling me anything. I I learned that the group that held me initially was called Al-Mirabitun. At that point, the umbrella group, uh, Jainam, which is an acronym, the Muslim and Islamic Defense League, basically. This group merged with them, but that particular group also split in two and half became ISIS. And the other half stayed with Al-Qaeda and formed
0: Jaina. But I didn't know any of this till much. Right. Time. So they put you in the back of the truck and headed for Mali right away? Is that right? or That's what they did. Okay. And the next
1: day we rolled and, rolled and rolled and rolled and rolled and rolled. And I didn't know how far we went. I lost track of time. And I was held um, for four months until I was transferred to Al-Qaeda. I was held northeast of Timbuktu, kind of in the grasslands out there. And up on the plateau rise. And then they transferred me to Al Qaeda and they took me into the, the dunes between Timbuktu and the Mauritanian border. And that was crazy. I what did what was that
0: transfer ago. like? Like, did you know now who had you and who was about to have you? Or they never tell you anything, they just hand no, you off they, to a they different don't tell guy you and anything at all. put you in a different truck and off you go.
1: Yep. They put me in a truck, they came to get me. Uh, the number two guy in Al-Qaeda came, but I didn't know. Actually, the number one guy and the number two guy and their, their video maker all came, like I think, on the seventh day of my captivity to, to interrogate me. So I met all three of those guys, but they did not tell me the organization or anything. But I knew I'd been traded because we went an awful long way, we drove forever. And uh, the treatment, already the last two weeks that I was with the group that had snatched me, the treatment got really bad. Then when when they gave me to Al-Qaeda, that's when they started using chains, that very night. First they just put the handcuffs around my ankles, and that really cut me up real bad. And so then they started using chains. And at that point, I did a video. I did my first video when I was still with Alan Meribitun in December of 2016.
0: And that's when the ransom demands went out. It seems like, and again, not a kidnapper, but we have Jeff. We're trying to get money for him. It seems like they would definitely want to keep you alive if they saw you as a paycheck. Mm -hmm. And yet they were not treating you well at all, like was there anything done to make sure
1: you don't die on them or? Uh, later, when I started the hunger strike, when I, when I lost all the desire to even stay alive, and also I got very, very, very sick with malaria. But this was like in the fifth and sixth the year. They started doing things to try and uh, encourage my, my mood, my morale. And there's a big disjunct between the leadership of that, those organizations because JNM is an umbrella of four. And the people that actually get they to guard you,
0: you. That actually have the guns and are standing next yeah, to you. Yeah, a lot of those
1: are just young people. I've had kids as young as 12 with their rifles pushing me around and they think you're a kafir, you're a kafir, an animal, imudar. Uh You have absolutely no value. According to Islam, according to the Quran, a non-Muslim life is um you can take it, it's it's not sacred. And so they can do whatever they want to you. They can steal from you, kill you, beat you, rape you, rob you, and it's not a sin. And that's how they look at it. So the younger people are gonna mistreat you. It's just the way it is. And they they're cruel. And they're taught to be that way. These poor people, these kids, they don't have anything. You know, they're, they're in the tent and they've got their animals. They take them to the well. They take them home. That's their life every day. They don't go to school. There's nothing for them. You know, north of the river in Mali, there's not even a single paved road. And that place has got to be two or three times the size of Texas. You know, it's huge. And there's not even a single paved road. Those people have been basically left to be on their own. And um, so along comes Jihadi John. He gives you a cell phone full of all kinds of propaganda videos and clips and music and indoctrinates you and gives you a rifle and gives you a training course and gives you a motorbike. And then you get paid when you get to do jobs like guarding me. And all of a sudden you've got status and you're somebody and uh, you get to be a thug for God. So the the recruiting pool is vast.
0: How soon after you got snatched did they give you an opportunity to become a Muslim and get better treatment?
1: Oh, I was I was preached at constantly,
0: nonstop,
1: in the truck that snatched me out of Abalak. And and you know, if they came to talk to me, it was either to be extremely cruel and nasty, or if they were ever nice at all, behind the nicety was always the the hook of becoming a Muslim. And one of the reasons, one of the things they, they wanted to do was break me. And so when I was given to Al Qaeda, the very first team, which is called Rabat, a guard team, it was out in the, in the dunes, down this, the bottom of this, this hollow, between two very high sand dunes. And the bottom, the sand is white, like powdered sugar. And it was hot season. It was like 120 or more every day. And they built a box, basically, out of grass with a grass mat over the top of it and some grass they'd cut to put along the sides. I couldn't lay down. I couldn't stand up. And I could touch both sides with my hands not fully extended. And I was stuck in there. And I didn't know how, for how long I was going to be in there. I was not allowed out except to go to the bathroom. I was not allowed to walk, ever, except for to go to the bathroom and at night they would let me out onto a blanket and they would chain me up to jihadi music on their phones and they tighten the chains until I, they were cut and if I complained they would smack me around and laugh. And I had no clue how long this was going to go on. Um, It went on for two months, and they tried to get me to become a Muslim. When they went to talk to me, that's what they would try and do. And it was always, well, we'll take the chains off if you convert. I mean, I dissociated, which is a psychological term for losing your head. It was a difficult two months, but I never converted.
0: Was it ever a temptation? I mean, even just to say the words and it wasn't, that was never an option for me. This is Todd Nettleton at the Voice of the Martyrs Radio. We're listening this week to a conversation I recorded on the road with Jeffrey Woodkey, who was kidnapped and held hostage in West Africa for more than six years. How do you feel like the Lord helped you in those, I mean, were there scripture passages that you thought about meditated on were there things you prayed where you felt like the lord answered
1: well i would pray i would i would worship every morning eventually when i was able allowed to walk i would walk and i would sing i would pray i prayed eight hours a day at first i didn't have anything else to do and i would fast and that would always get them upset i pray the lord's prayer a lot um i sang the worship songs that I could remember. So yeah, and I had a lot of dreams, predictive dreams and visions um, that came true, They came to pass. Of release or of worse treatment or both or? All of the above. Some of them were very scary. I couldn't see why would God show me that and then let it happen. I don't see the advantage of it, but um, at least you know that God is there. And eventually, I got to the point where I would say, yeah, God, these dreams are great. Look, it just happened. It just came true. <laughs> That's fantastic. It's a miracle. But I'm still here, God. <laughs> so, hey, I'd rather not have the dreams and get out of here. Um, but I think it's, it's a process. And God wants you to know
0: that he's with you through it. The, the dreams and the visions, was that a part of your spiritual walk before captivity? Absolutely not. So this was a new thing for
1: you spiritually. And it's not continued. My last dream, few
0: weeks before my release. And as you said, it let you know God, God's still with you. Like God is still speaking to you, even in this really horrible situation.
1: Yeah. I asked for a Bible. They said, oh, we don't have any of those. <laughs> and they eventually brought me a bunch of Quranic materials.
0: In English or in French? Arab- uh, French, French okay. Arabic. I speak French. Did you feel like even the leaders or anyone respected the fact that you were consistent in your faith, that you, that you weren't willing to become a Muslim?
1: Yeah, there were people that, you know, well, at least you believe in God, you know, but... And Christianity is second to, to, to Islam because it, there are some verses that say Christianity is the closest faith to Islam because when the monks hear the words of the prophet, they weep. So, yeah, see, you're not too far away one of the things we learn in YWAM is how to act in the opposite spirit. So if people are going to hate you, then what you need to do is practice forgiveness. And so I did that. And I knew that was very important to me. Because otherwise I'd end up being filled with this hate while I was still there. Right. And that would, that would tear me apart. So you have to forgive. It sounds noble and all spiritual, it's just not, really. I mean, it's just what you do. It's the best weapon you have. And I think it's the best weapon we have, no matter what our situation is as Christians,
0: is the ability to forgive. So talk me through, how, how did you do that? How did you put that into practice?
1: Well, whenever I got a chance to express it to someone, to one of them... I would. I mean, if I was changing camps or changing teams, I would say, look, I forgive you. I forgive you. For, I forgive all of them. I forgive this guy, that guy, that guy. I forgive the chains, all the stuff you've done. And some of them would laugh and say, we don't want your forgiveness. And other people would say, okay, yeah. Good. But you do that. I mean, it's not like, oh, everything's better and I'm all fuzzy. Um, that's not how forgiveness works. You're still angry, but it's not turning into hate. Right. And you have to do it. I still have to do it every day, every morning. Every morning.
0: Almost more of an intellectual exercise than a, like you say, not a warm, fuzzy feeling, but a, nope, I'm choosing to forgive.
1: Yeah, so you don't hold on to the anger. And then when you get angry, you know, you can let it go through you. You find your ways to deal with that. And it doesn't turn into hate. You don't turn into a hater. I don't hate Muslims. Okay. I didn't come out wanting to join all these people that, you know, want to burn Korans. Most of the Muslims, they didn't hurt me, and they would never do so. So why should I be angry at them? And even the people that took me, I could probably sit down and have a conversation with them and, and not not want their veins in my teeth. Wow. That is not to say I don't have rage. I, I have PTSD. I get upset. I, get, I have terrible attacks, fewer now, when I flash back. But it's not—it's not a hatred. It's—it's—it's it's a, it's a stress response. It's a different thing.
0: Maybe the story of Jeffrey Woodkey has brought to mind a painful story of your own, and you've been reminded today of the power of forgiveness. Would you do what Jeff does each day and say, "I choose to forgive others, the way Jesus has forgiven me," and? Like Jeff, maybe you're still struggling with the pain of what's been done to you. I want to encourage you to get with your pastor or a wise Christian mentor who can help you to heal and to practically walk out the steps of forgiveness. We pray that the stories you hear on Voice of the Martyrs Radio will help you lean on the Lord, help you learn to forgive and to love your enemies, even in the messiness of real life. Jeff's story helps us to do that. You'll find more stories like this one in the archives when you come to our website, vomradio.net. You can also read stories like this every month when you get the free Voice of the Martyrs magazine. Just visit vomradio.net. At the top of the page, click on free magazine. We would love to send that to you. As you can tell, Jeff Woodkey's story is not over. We're going to pick up with part two of this conversation next week. I know you'll want to be a part of that. Please be back right here on the Voice of the Martyrs radio network.